Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, January 16th. For Martin Luther King's birthday, it's an oral history call-in centering black voices for anyone who remembers the civil rights era. We'll call that roughly any of the years from World War II through to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and up until Dr. King was assassinated in 1968. But here's a clip of Martin Luther King himself from NBC News um, three years after the landmark civil rights law of 1964 was passed. This was 1967, and they replayed it on MSNBC this morning in which King practically predicted the realities of today so many years later. It's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee an annual income, for instance, to get rid of poverty for Negroes and all poor people. It's much easier to integrate a bus uh, than it is to make genuine integration a reality and quality education a reality in our schools. It's much easier to integrate even a public park than it is to get rid of slums. And I think we are in a new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we are getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. Dr. King on NBC in the 60s. Joining us for the rest of the hour, along with your calls, is Dr. Peniel Joseph, founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also associate dean there for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And he is author of books, including his most recent, very relevant, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. He also wrote the award-winning books, Waiting Till the Midnight Hour, A Narrative History of Black Power in America, and Dark Days, Bright Nights, From Black Power to Barack Obama, and he wrote a biography of Stokely Carmichael called Stokely, A Life. He also had a CNN commentary just this weekend called Why Martin Luther King Jr.'s Sharpest Question Remains Unanswered. You can read that on CNN site. Peniel, always good to have you on. Welcome back to WNYC. Hey, great to be on, Brian. And you recall in your article, King's Political Activism from 60 Years Ago, 1963, and say he reimagined American democracy on both an intimate and expansive scale, introducing a new lexicon for citizenship. That goes way beyond conceptually what people might think of, oh, 60 years ago, he gave the I Have a Dream speech. So what did you mean a new lexicon for citizenship? Well, King is the person who really provides us the context to think about racial justice as the beating heart of American democracy. And alongside of Malcolm X, uh, King thinks about radical black citizenship and then later dignity um, as key concepts of transforming 
the American nation state, really for all people. Um, he makes the argument that dignity is more than just voting rights and civil rights. It's really decent housing, a guaranteed income, um, health care, environmental justice, freedom from uh, violence and food hunger uh, and freedom from uh, really hatred. So the, the intimacy is proximity. King thought that we should all be in proximity with one another, which is why he was against segregation. But he was interested in being in proximity, even with people who were ideological opponents uh, and adversaries. Uh, he pushed back against the idea that uh, we should hate people who were opposed to our own political philosophies. And so when we think about King, he's the person who's going to introduce um, this idea of the beloved community and really change the lexicon and the, the vernacular of American democracy. And by beloved community, he meant a few things. He meant a society that was free of what he called militarism, materialism, and racism, but also a society that invested in what he called the least of these, invested in people who were poor, homeless, who were incarcerated, um, who were uh, folks who, who were dispossessed within the United States, but also globally. The visit to India in 1959 teaches him about racial caste. His visit to Ghana in 1957 teaches him about political self-determination. So there's a reason why King becomes a Nobel um, Peace Prize winner is because he's really thinking about human rights uh, for all people, but he makes the claim that it's going to start right here in the United States because famously in the letter from Birmingham jail, King says that the movement will overcome because the goal of America is freedom. So King even redefines what we mean by freedom. You know, we've been taking calls from people who lived through the civil rights era with a memory of the movement and something they think has or hasn't changed as a result of the civil rights laws. Let's take one of those calls. Catherine in Wilmington, Delaware, you're on WNYC. Hi, Catherine. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. What memory would hey, you like to share? Uh, first of all, I'm an 83-year-old woman, and uh, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. I had no uh, exposure or explanation of segregation. Uh, I never knew any black people. And how I was first exposed to it is uh, going to a University of Delaware where I met a young black man who was in some of my classes and we would walk back and forth uh, to, uh, to uh, our classes. And he started telling me how he was being treated at the school that the, the where the room they gave to him was next to the boiler. And I was shocked. And then he started telling me about uh, what he was allowed to do or he was afraid to do. So then I started looking around and I became aware that there was deep segregation in our city. There was color fountains and rooms for... Uh, uh, bathrooms for colored people, the theaters, certain theaters, they were not allowed. Then I took a trip from South, I think it was in 63. Uh, I noticed the signs all over the place. And uh, before that, I got involved in uh, civil rights marches in the city and 
sitting in front of real estate offices that were literally redlining neighborhoods. And the more I became aware, the more indignant I became. Catherine, thank you very much for your call. I really appreciate it. Um, and, Peniel, there's a story of a white woman from a northern state who had no awareness of segregation, as she tells it, until she met a black man who was describing what he was going through, even in an, a not officially segregated part of the country. And it makes me think about how your books are both about King, who is remembered in part for his politics of love and unity and nonviolence, even as he was fierce and a radical in the context of his time in so many ways, but also about those fighters for racial justice who white Americans saw as more hostile, perhaps, than King. Stokely Carmichael, we had a, a you know, fond remembrance of Stokely from one of our calls a few minutes before you came on, and Malcolm X and others. How does the passage of time bind those leaders to King or separate them from him? Well, I think they were always bound. I think we look at the civil rights period and the black power period, we should really think of it as a second American reconstruction. And I, and I think we're in a third reconstruction now, Brian, we had an earlier caller talk about reconstruction and reconstructionists are supporters of multiracial democracy versus redemptionists who are advocators and supporters of racial caste and white supremacy. And there's a whole group that is lifting King up, people like the Ella Bakers and the Fannie Lou Hamers, and certainly people like Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael. And so we, we need to see these folks as dual sides of the, of the same revolutionary coin who, who are in the sword and the shield, I argue, that Malcolm and Martin are both sword and shield. So uh, we think about Malcolm X and his call for radical political self-determination and his critique of racism um, his critique of anti-black violence as the sword uh, and King as the shield because of nonviolence. But King is also a political sword. And we think about letter from Birmingham jail, Brian, in 1963. He says that um, he's come to the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride toward freedom, it's not the white citizens council or the Ku Klux Klan, it's the white moderate, right? And mm -hmm. so when we think about that, King says it was the right white moderate who's more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. And then there's going to be folks like Malcolm and Stokely, Angela Davis, others, who really take that idea and, and further amplify it, as King did in the late 1960s. The King of 66, 67, 68 is not the same King of 60, 61, 62. Once he sees that civil rights legislation is not enough to transform power relations and the actual living conditions of people in Los Angeles and people in Selma and people in Chicago and people in New York City, King starts to call for redistributive justice. He starts to call for the redistribution of wealth from the top to the bottom rungs of American society. And that's what the Poor People's Campaign is about. And he's joined by other civil rights demonstrations demonstrators and, and activists. It's, it's black women who are part of the National Welfare Rights Organi Organization who teach King about welfare policy and why a guaranteed income is necessary. It's going to be uh, Hispanic farm workers who teach King about what's happening in terms of agricultural policy and the unfair labor practices for folks uh, picking 
oranges in Florida and folks picking grapes uh, in California. Um, it's, it's poor black folks in Marks, Mississippi, who teach King about what's happening there where they have no food or blankets and there's a food desert and they're in Quitman County, Mississippi, the poorest zip code in the United States at the time. So King is really somebody who's constantly a student and he's humble enough to admit that he's a student. He does so many different meetings with so many different advocacy groups on the run-up to doing the Poor People's Campaign. And the reason he's assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, in, on April 4th, 1968, is because he's helping 1,100 sanitation workers right. who are on strike for a living wage, right? So King is really this extraordinary um, figure who, who is an activist, but who's really buoyed by these other activists in that second period of Reconstruction. Robert in Queens, you're on WNYC. Hi, Robert. Hi, Brian. Uh, let's see if I can get through this. In 1963, my father, who was a New York City police officer, a strict adherence to the law, went to the march on Washington. And uh, when he returned, I overheard him speaking to my mother in the kitchen in private, and he said that if Dr. King had said the only way to solve this problem was to burn down Wall Street, that he would be out there with his matches. And I thought to myself, who is Martin Luther King? Who is this man that could make my father say such a thing? A month later, I was on a school bus, the oldest of nine kids, part of the open enrollment program to integrate the schools in Queens, in Douglaston Manor. And I got on that bus and I went off to Douglaston Manor. And I guess I've made it through telling you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, wow. Um, is the moral of the story how powerful an influence Dr. King was, how powerful a speaker that it, even your father, a law and order cop, might have been moved to violence if, if King had said it was okay? Or would you put it a different way? Yeah, I, I found it, I was totally blown away because my father was such, such a, such a cop, such a New York City cop. I mean, he, he spoke about, you know, having to guard Malcolm X in Harlem. And uh, he was not, not happy with Malcolm at all. Mm. But uh, this man had gone to Washington, D.C. and was totally moved by Dr. King. Thank I you mean, so much for your call. Uh, Peniel, was that part of Dr. King's genius, sort of knowing just how much to turn up the heat and how much not to for actual results in Congress? Yeah, absolutely, especially during the 63, 64, 65 period. He's definitely interested in a kind of radical reform, which is eventually going to lead to uh, the demonstrations in Selma, what's happening in Birmingham, and the passage of those those really important pieces of legislation. I think, however, when we think about 66, 67, 68, a great, um, uh, the, the idea, a great example of this is the 67 Vietnam speech, um, uh, a time for, for uh, where, where silence is betrayal, where, where he, he really Here pushes in New York. back. Is that the, uh, the, the New York speech? The Riverside Church speech, yeah, yeah April 4th, 1967. And, and you know, at that point, he's really not trying to um, push for just congressional legislation. He breaks with the President of the United States, 
And he's really pushing for this kind of political and moral um, transformation, right? And so when we think about the, the latter-day king, he's really thinking, you know, he's got, he's got speeches like remaining awake to a great revolution, the drum major, instinct, and then a time to break, si- break the silence. And, and in that speech, he says the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, but he also says that he loves the country, which is why he's going to criticize the country. And he says we have a country where black and white soldiers can destroy and murder uh, people in Vietnam, but they can't live on the same block in Detroit, and there's something wrong with that. Saying this, April 4th, 1967. So there's a point where he realizes we have to go beyond legislation. Legislation is actually needed, but we, we need to rethink the entire uh, American project. And that's very, very important for us because the king that we celebrate annually, we don't celebrate him as a crit- critic of American imperialism and, and capitalism and violence, we celebrate him as sort of this, um, this, this martyr to a, a dream uh, that, that remains unfulfilled. And really, he's, he's, he's both those things at the same time, which is why he had so many different uh, people in his coalition. And we have to understand that in order to achieve the country that King wanted, we have to be able to do both those things. He said it was going to be a bitter but beautiful struggle. We can love the United States of America while criticizing the country and its injustices at the same time, and that's what King did. Dr. Peniel Joseph, founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the University of Texas at Austin and author of books including The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, Jr., Always good to have you on and with your deep knowledge of history and and such a a broad emotional perspective that you brought to today as well. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.